everybody. Welcome back to the podcast, episode 78 of the Noel Kassler Podcast. Coming to you from Nantucket. Once again, (laughs) got my trusty little mandolin here. It's actually a guitar, but it looks like a mandolin, just like, you know... Kristen Cinema looks like a Democrat, but she's actually a Republican. You never know what something's going to sound like until you pick it up and play it. I don't know <laughs> what that means, but I figured I'd say it. So welcome back to the show. I'm in a vacation home, so there might be some noise in the background and stuff. Just uh, bear with me, giving you an attempt to do the podcast because I've done it consecutively and I don't want to leave those nice people that listen hanging on such a huge news week. I mean, we really had a momentous week coming at the end of August, right? August is over on Wednesday, you know, so so last week should have traditionally been a pretty slow news week and instead it was crazy, you know. You started the week with Dr. Fauci announcing his retirement and kudos to that guy who spent his life in the public health sector helping Americans, you know, working at NIH, a self-made man in many respects. He went to Regis High School, which you get into off of Merit. That's a high school in New York City on the Upper East Side that's different from the schools that rich kids just buy their way into. You actually have to be smart to go there. And he went to Holy Cross, and then he went to Cornell Medical School, Cornell Weill Medical School, one of the best programs in the country, and then went on to lead this nation's, you know, response to infectious diseases for decades. You know, I think he served under like seven presidents or something. Really just a a wonderful example of a, you know, a, a life in public service. And what do they do? The Republicans spent the entire first half of the week attacking the man. They still are. You know, they're saying they're gonna, you know, have him on trial and throw him on j- in jail and stuff. It's insane. Like, I don't know how that guy has the patience to put up with it. If they were saying that about me, I would be losing it. You know, not to mention if I had to stand there on the stage when Trump was president and, um, you know, millions of people were getting infected and he's telling people to drink bleach. I mean, just pure insanity. And the guy kept it cool and really provided a great example for what an adult looks like. You know, that guy is an adult. He was always measured. He was always cool under pressure. He was always professional, right? And he was always looking at the greater good, not his own interest. A guy who was into his own interest would have been like, I'm out of here a long time ago. You know, I don't need this shit. But instead he put up with it because he knew what was at stake. And that's what you want in government officials, right? You want people who feel like they have some calling to contribute and help society as opposed to people trying to fill their own pockets, which was Trump and the entire GOP, right? And the rest of the week laid that bare because what happened? Biden had his excellent student loan debt relief, you know, signing of his bill, right? And he's relieving relieving 20,000 for Pell Grants and 10 grand for, for others. And I owe over 10 grand in interest on loans that I took out in the mid 90s, okay? My loans like came due in 1996. I've been paying them for decades. I send in a monthly payment, right? 200 something dollars a month for all that time since then. You know, there's a couple times it went into, you know, I got a forbearance after 9/11 or whatever, but like I've never defaulted on my loans, okay? I've 
stayed current with them for decades and I've never t touched the principal. And I owe more now than when I borrowed by the tune of about $10,000, right? So if I end up qualifying and getting that, I will be back to where I started, paying off my debt, which is all anybody's asking. And what is being addressed by Biden is dealing with the compounded interest, right? That was a result of this predatory lending that you could never touch. So you would just spend your life in basically indentured servitude to these loan companies, you know, that had government protections. I took out my loans with Sally May, which turned into Navient. They had to rebrand themselves because <laughs> they were sort of so corrupt. But that was like the one debt you couldn't get out of, right? You couldn't declare bankruptcy and get out of those debts. They were getting their money. And it wasn't getting their money. They were getting their interest payments, these ballooning interest payments that Americans get stuck on and that disproportionately affects African Americans and minorities and women and trying people trying to get ahead, right? Because rich kids don't need student loans. The kind of snot-nosed punks like Matt Gates who get to go to William Mary because their dad is rich don't need it, right? And all those guys were trashing the bill this week and saying it's a handout. Meanwhile, they all got PPP loans that they didn't pay back. You know, what does Matt Gates getting a $400,000 PPP loan or whatever it was. What is MTG getting a loan for? You know, these are members of Congress. That loan, that PPP thing, that bill was a free-for-all for grifting. Those people were stuffing their pockets with that. And I remember the night Trump signed that legislation, he didn't look high in the normal way he looks high, you know, from being wired from Snort and Adderall. He looked high on the power, knowing he was about to hand, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to his friends. And that's what he did. And those guys didn't pay that back. And now their claim, because the White House wisely sort of, you know, went Jersey on their social media yeah, site and started naming all of these you know, congressmen that got these loans, these hypocrites, you know, now their response when they're called out on this is like, well, those lo loans were designed to be paid back or designed not to be paid back. Well, really? Then it's a handout. Then why don't you just call it what it is? The same thing you demonize others for receiving. You know, it just lays bare the hypocrisy. And it's annoying. It's infuriating at this point. And it's especially infuriating given the climate we're in, given the two years that we've been through, given the amount of racism and xenophobia that that party ran on, you know, their whole brand is getting sort of middle class and lower middle class suburban red state white people to hate other people and to think that they're the chosen ones, that their white Christian ideology is all that matters and, you know, gay people and minorities and liberals and intellectuals are all evil, you know, and that universities are indoctrination, indoctrination centers for wokeism, you know, it's so stupid. It's like Joe Rogan is writing the charter for the Republican Party. Like, how do we appeal to dumb people? You know, it's like barstool sports or just, you know, idiot comics that just say dumb shit to dumb guys for laughs, right? That's what the GOP is doing, right? They're, they're trusting that their base will be stupid enough to not follow, you know, what's really going on and that they're the ones who are really getting hurt. Just like when the PPP loans happened, 
I would talk to people that own like lawn services and stuff and I'd be like, did you get a loan? They're like, no, I didn't want to get in trouble. I was scared to get it, right? So a lot of people that those loans were designed for didn't even apply for them because they were playing by the rules. Who applied for those loans were people who could have attorneys and accountants and guys fill out the paperwork and tell them that they were going to be okay, that they could sort of scam this money and cover their asses because they could pay it back if they had to. You know, because again, nobody knew that they were going to be forgiven in the first place. You know, as I said before, I've heard about entertainers, you know, and rock stars and stuff getting millions in PPP loans, guys that didn't need it at all. You know, Larry Kudlow, my former neighbor who used to smoke crack on my block, you know, and was a dry drunk in the time I knew him, who obviously relapsed when he went back into the administration. His wife got a PPP loan. You know, they live in suburban Connecticut now. They live in a nice home, and her job is painting pictures of neckties, oil paintings of neckties. And for that, she received a substantial PPP loan, which I'm sure she didn't pay back. Yet Larry Kudlow was on Fox Business Network with some idiot congressman talking about how it's a handout. You know, they've used that scam since the beginning, you know. We're bootstrap, hardworking Americans, and we respect debt, and we pay what our what we owe, you know. And our word is our bond, you know. We do things on a handshake. All this John Wayne kind of bullshit, you know, um, you know, self-like determination myth of the American dream is bullshit, you know. Those guys got a handout their whole lives. They were born into a handout, and they know it, and they're trying to keep others down. That's the American way. That's the core of it. As I've said a million times, it's like Howard Zinn pointed out, you know, getting the indentured servants to resent others, you know, getting the, the, the farm laborers, you know, and the poor Irish and Italian to represent, you know, to resent African Americans, you know, and Asian Americans who helped build this country. That's who built these railroads. You know, this country was built by people from all over the world after this country was stolen from indigenous people, right? But if you listen to the mythology of the American way, you know, and their forefathers, you'd think these, you know, guys were sent from the heavens to teach us all a better way to live. Instead, they were just a bunch of young men with no teeth that didn't want to pay taxes and own other people because they didn't want to work hard in the fields, you know, and wrote some shit, you know, with some quill pens where women weren't even recognized, but now we're supposed to act like they were writing, you know, some kind of scripture. And why is that? Because it works. It works for simple-minded people like Lauren Boebert and MTG, you know, and Herschel Walker and all these idiots that are running for Congress now just spewing hate and platitudes and waving a flag, right? It created the avenue that somebody like Donald Trump you know, a man so unqualified not to hold public office, you wouldn't make him treasurer of a bake sale, okay? You wouldn't sit next to him in a food court if you were sitting there with your family and that dude sat next to you and you saw what he really looks like in person with his fake hair and his skull, you know, his scalp reduction and his makeup and his smell because he just stinks, you know? He doesn't brush his teeth, so he's got, you know, 10 years worth of meatloaf on his breath. It's disgusting. He's a disgusting human being just on a physical level. 
You know, you have a visceral response to him when you meet him. There's nobody who worked on Celebrity Apprentice who would trust Trump with his with their kids, right? His own kids don't let him play with the grandkids. They'll let him walk them to the helicopter or something sometime. They're not spending the night at grandpa's for good reason, okay? The dude's a freak. He's a pervert. He's always been. But he's in that echelon of society where nobody called him out on his bullshit, you know? And what did we learn on Friday when the affidavit was released? Affidavit. We learned that he was selling the names, essentially. This is what's between the lines. That he was selling the names of foreign assets, right? Of guys that were helping our intelligence community and women, you know, that were collecting information and giving it to our intelligence agencies. Do you know how long it takes to cultivate those kind of relationships? Do you know how much risk those people put themselves and their families in, you know, for a safer world, for a more secure United States. And Trump saw it as a valuable asset, something he could sell to his debtors, you know. And Jared Kushner is the guy who spearheaded that, right? Because Jared went into the administration with an enormous amount of debt, as did Trump, right? They were both deadbeats, you know, which is another thing, right? They talk about like people receiving student loans like they're deadbeats. Trump had $700 million worth of loans coming due in 2008, right? When the real estate financial crash hit, okay? What did Trump do? He stopped making his payments to Deutsche Bank for his Chicago Tower, right? He got an extension. They gave him, you know, another extension. He missed both of those. They wanted their money. He turned around and sued them for $3 billion, okay? And then they ended up relieving $287 million of debt. And in his lawsuit, he accused them of predatory lending, right? The exact thing that loan companies actually did to students that Trump University did to students, he used in his legal language to get out of paying his debt. And he got out of it, right? Because he's a rich white guy, you know, and he doesn't have to pay his bills, right? But they're on TV, these same people now, you know, telling the rest of us that we don't deserve, you know, a fair shot at an education. It's insanity, but it shows what they're trying to protect. They're trying to protect a system of mediocrity, right? And their place in this hierarchical, patriarchal world. That's why you have, you know, completely immoral and soulless men like Lindsey Graham on TV begging for riots if Trump gets arrested, trying to call out to the troops, take to the streets if they arrest your hero, right? That's intimidation, right? They're trying to sort of foreshadow an insurrection. And it's completely dangerous, and we've almost become numb to it. You know, it's almost like mind-blowing that Trump is still walking free. You know, that, that that much of insanity was occurring, not just in Mar-a-Lago. He was taking these boxes around the world with him, right? Trump's a hoarder. He's always been a hoarder. If you look at pictures of his, like, um, office in Trump Tower, he would have, I pointed this out before, he would have boxes of Sudafed in the drawer. There would be newspapers everywhere and magazine clippings. Like, he had People magazines from the 80s still sitting on his desk. Like, the dude was a freak. When, when Mark Burnett went in to originally film The Apprentice, all the furniture was really ratty and threadbare because he hadn't replaced it. 
It was just like walking into your hoarder grandmother's house. And Mark had to go out and rent furniture to make it look like an actual billionaire lived and worked there, you know, which, of course, he wasn't really a billionaire. He was a guy who was in debt. His whole career was about debt. His father's career was about debt, right? His dad, Fred Trump, built his empire on low interest and no interest FHA loans, which were part of the New Deal. They were designed to build affordable housing for GIs coming back from World War II so they could start families, right? So he got to build all these apartments in Brooklyn and Queens and the New York area on these loans he got for free. Then he stiffed the government on taxes, found all these ways to get around taxes, some of which included Trump himself, who was a millionaire by the time he was 11 months old because his dad would sign over the properties to his children so they didn't have to pay taxes on them. Like, talk about a scumbag, right? Not paying his share, right? And then they figured out how to launder money for the mob, and that's what his father did, you know, was the Genovese crime family. And then that was their territory. It was Queens and Brooklyn and North Jersey, and then Trump broke out on his own, went into business with the Gambinos in New York City in the 80s, right? But the whole model was built on debt debt that they never intended to pay back, and debt that you could make no other case for it was anything less than democratic socialism, you know? That's what saved this country. That's what built the middle class, right? Was making the GI Bill possible, right? So, so people could come back from fighting in World War II and saving the world from fascism, I might point out, from the same kind of shit that they're using the iconography of now to push their agenda. Right? They're using Nazi flags at DeSantis rallies every week. They're using the language of Mussolini, Mussolini and Hitler. You know, they're appealing to the same ignorance, the same evil hearts that think they're somehow superior to somebody else. You're not superior to anything on this planet. Okay? You're just a part of everything else. You're not better and you're not worse. You know, you're a worker among workers for lack of a better term, right? But they don't see it that way. They see inferiority as superiority because it's something you can sell, right? It's a movable feast for these guys, right? Because it, it just transfers. In any decade, the same rhetoric works, right? That's the real model and legacy of Americanism in the American experiment, right? Is that mediocre white men get to make the decisions where somehow you know, anointed by the gods to know what's best for freedom and democracy. It's all bullshit. It's never really been free. It's never been a fair democracy, right? And that's never been in greater relief than it is now because they're not hiding it. They're not even pretending what their goals are, you know? They're completely immoral. They don't want anybody else to get ahead and they're willing to fight tooth and nail to, to prevent it from happening to protect a guy a guy who never paid his bills, <laughs> right? Trump, like when he built all his crappy casinos in Atlantic City, if you were the guy who put in the carpets or the brass railings or whatever, and you sent in your invoice, you weren't getting paid. And then six months later, after you'd sent in 10 invoices, you still weren't getting paid. And then when you hired a lawyer and tried to recoup your money, he would use his lawyers, because he always had unscrupulous lawyers on staff, I know people will say, like, you know, 
Nobody will represent him. He had plenty of people representing him for a long time who had no qualms writing threatening letters to guys he owned money to, owed money to, right? But if you finally, you know, lawyered up and tried to get your money, his lawyers would drag it out in court to the point that you couldn't afford it and you'd end up with pennies on the dollar. And that happened time and time again in Atlantic City. And some people killed themselves because they, you know, they lost their businesses, they couldn't support their kids, and it all caved in on them, you know? That's the kind of man Trump is, a guy who never intends to pay his bills. On Celebrity Apprentice, the scam was, call up your rich friends. That's what he would tell the celebrities behind the scenes, you know, because they were from Hollywood. He's like, you must know rich people. Call them up. Tell them to donate money, right? And then Trump would, like, pretend to donate money, too. He'd say, oh, that's a great cause. I'm going to match your donation. And he never did. And NBC would have to end up footing the bill for Trump's big mouth. So he's a guy who never has paid his bills, who's always operated carrying debt, who's always operated cheating on his taxes, right? Bedminster, the golf club that he's now using to launder Saudi Arabian money, right, through the live tournament, he has like 12 goats there, and that gets him out of property taxes. So he's gotten out of millions of dollars in property taxes because he owns goats and pretends to be a farm and he gets a farm exemption, right? And this is like horse country, New Jersey. This is prime real estate. I've mentioned this before. Like, that's insane. He paid $700 in property taxes in 2020, you know? <laughs> like, the amount of scams that that guy has run to get out of debt would boggle your mind. And most people can't keep up with it. And he knows that. And the Republican Party knows that. They know most people can't follow this shit. And more importantly, they know the people that do follow it aren't ever going to vote for them anyway. So they're counting on the dumbasses to respond to waving the flag, to think that Hunter Biden or some made-up bullshit is a bigger threat to them than Donald Trump. The guy who's traveling the world with boxes of classified documents and basically saying, who wants to buy this? You know, who sees this as something they can relieve some debt for? You know, that's what Jared was doing. Jared went into that administration thinking, how do I get out of this deal with 666 Fifth Avenue, right? Where he owed like a billion dollars. Like he overpaid right before the crash. It was one of the worst real estate investments in history. Right? And it was on him. It was on the books and it was coming due. And what did Jared do? He got the United Arab Emirates and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to threaten a blockade on Qatar, right? A naval blockade on Qatar. And all of a sudden, Qatar, who had refused to loan him the money, loaned him the money through a cutout, right? In Toronto, a hedge fund. So my point is, Jared. They didn't want to give access to these classified documents from the beginning, got access. He was overruled by Trump himself, and they gave Jared access, who had an insatiable appetite for this information, right? If you remember correctly, Trump didn't listen to the you know, PDBs, presidential daily briefings. He wasn't interested. They had to draw pictures for him. Jared was interested. Jared wanted to know who the names were of the assets in Israel and the Mideast because those names are very valuable to his friends, right? If you're going to Saudi Arabia and you, you want to say, hey, you know, there's a guy 
that you don't know, but he's given us information about what you guys are doing, and he's been doing it for decades. Would you like to know who he is so you can root it out? Of course they would. Okay, well, I need you to do me a favor first. I need you to get gutter to sign off on this loan. That's what they were doing, you know? That's what's going to come out, hopefully, right? If they don't, you know, start an insurrection beforehand. That's it. This is not a big complicated thing, right? This is shaking people down, mob tax tactics, right? It was all in the Zelensky call. Hey, I need you to do me a favor first. Get some dirt on my opponent, right? Not how can I help you stand up to the Russians, to a dictator like Putin. It was like, hey, what are you going to do for me, buddy? Here's how we're going to do it. That's Trump. It's mob tactics. It's all it is. You know, it's insanity. It's grift. It's shakedown. You know, when we would do the Celebrity Apprentice after parties in the beginning, I think up until 2010, we did them at Trump Soho, which was a total scam building he had in New York City. Ivanka headed up that project. She lied to all the investors. They inflated the assets of how many people had invested. It was completely illegal. They built it on the site of an old abolitionist church where they had enslaved people literally buried there. And the New York Historical Society was like, you can't build here. This is a you know a sacred site. And they were like, screw you. And they went in there with their bulldozers and did it anyway. So there was all this kind of cause to investigate. And there was a, you know, an investigation basically opened into Trump Soho and Cy Vance killed it, you know? who got a donation from Ivanka and was friendly with all that. So he slipped the noose on that as he's done a thousand times. But my point is this building was like super sketchy, right? And we would have the after parties there. This is when we used to tape the thing down at NYU at Skirball Center, if anybody knows local. New York geography. And Trump Soho, by the way, wasn't in Soho. It was in Tribeca. <laughs> so even the name was a lie. But... uh We'd go and have these after parties, and the after parties would be Felix Sater, who was the son of a big mobster, Russian mobster, and grew up in Bay Ridge, and you know was just a, you know, a thug, a Russian thug. He got he went to prison for stabbing a guy with a wine glass with the stem of a wine glass in a bar, you know, over an argument. Just a real like a bad guy you see in a movie, right? He was a Trump Organization employee. He had Trump Org business cards, and the after parties for this celebrity game show, whatever you want to call this stupid reality show, was nothing but Russian mobsters. Like the whole after party would be these mobster types and their like 25-year-old girlfriends wearing minks in May. <laughs> and I remember being there being like, what is going on here? This is long before Trump is president, of course. But I'm like, what is the deal? And I remember seeing Jared and Ivanka just work in the room with Felix. And Felix just being like, Boris, this is Ivanka. You know, and it was like a meet and greet for international crime. That's what it felt like. You know, it was not a normal situation. I'd been in TV for 20 years at that point. I've been to a lot of after parties. I'd never seen anything like this. So my point is they used that TV show as a way to expand their criminal enterprise and to seek, you know, debt relief themselves, right? To seek financial backers because everything was like you know it was a house of cards trump wasn't really he didn't really build shit he put his name on stuff it was licensing it was all this you know 
It was all this sort of bait and switch tactics. You know, it was about narcissism and branding. They weren't ever really going to follow through on their projects. They were just trying to get people to pay up, you know, in front and then take the money and, and bail. That's what they did in Trump Baja, this Toronto, you know, that business model is transferred all over the world. So they see an opportunity as how do we expand our reach? How do we get out of debt? How do we make more money? And that's what they saw the White House as, right? They went in there thinking, how do we profit from this situation? What's worth the most money, right? And Kushner was the guy who headed that up. And Kushner figured out right away, even before they took office, that access to classified information was going to be the key and that's why they set up a back channel with russia before he even took office right while trump was still president-elect they had a back channel set up they reached out to the russians you know to say hey how can we talk without intelligence agencies listening to us there's no other explanation for that Right? That's what they were doing. And he got busted on it and sort of, you know, gave a ham handed apology. And he's trying to address it now in his appearances on Fox News. This is Jared, you know, saying, oh, they were just overreacting. It was just a friendly phone call to foreign leaders, as you do when you get elected. No, that's not what you do. Okay? You put together a team to implement your domestic program, you know, and you get a Secretary of State and you go through the foreign relations committees and you approach you know foreign relations with the idea of what you know what's for the greater good and what do our intelligence agencies tell us we should be communicating to these people with you don't take boy wonder jared kushner you know who who's just botoxed arm candy for the trump family you know and the own his own scion of a corrupt real estate developer father right you don't take him and say, hey, why don't you call up the Kremlin and see what they uh, they want to talk about, you know? So the whole thing was a scam for from the beginning. And now he's busted, right? The affidavit came out. The search warrant, you know, was executed. You found out he had 300 top secret documents, over 700 classified documents. He was keeping crap in Melania's closet. He was mixing in top secret documents with his magazines and his newspaper clippings and taking them with him around the world. That is insane, you know? A hoarder grifter was taking the government's most secretive, you know, sensitive information and just leaving it in Mar-a-Lago, you know, leaving it in his hotel room, leaving it for people to see. You know, I guarantee you they were doing some handoffs and I guarantee you whatever's in that information is already in the possession of the people we didn't want it to be. And I'm sure our intelligence agencies will figure that out as they do an assessment, right? But in the meantime, what do we do as Americans? You know, what do you do with the onslaught of hatred that is still coming at us from the GOP, you know? Because they're, they're not distancing themselves from him right? They avoided the Sunday talk shows yesterday. This is Monday afternoon or morning as I'm taping this. But, uh, you know, they're sort of trying to lay low, but they're still all in on Trump because there's nothing on the other side of this, you know, and the smarmy Ted Cruz's and all these guys that are owned by the Koch brothers and the oil and gas industry and the dark money, you know, of Leonard Leo, who, by the way, got a $1.6 billion donation 
from a guy named Barry Side, who's a, you know, he invented the, or he, you know, he had a company that built power strips, surge protectors. So if you have a surge protector in your, you know, computer, that's, that's this guy's business, right? And he made a, a fortune. And now he gave a fortune to Leonard Leo, the head of the Federalist Society, the guy who packed the Supreme Court with his fundamentalist, corrupt Christian judges, right? He's the guy who walked into Trump's office a couple days after Trump was elected and handed him a list and said, there's like eight or nine names on this list. You can pick any of these people to be on the Supreme Court. Three of those names are now sitting on the Supreme Court with lifetime appointments, right? The guy who was sell selling classified secrets got to pick three lifetime justices on the Supreme Court. And what did they do, right? They rescinded Roe v. Wade, first order of business. God knows what they're going to do this fall, right? Social Security will be gone if these guys get reelected. Everybody will be armed who wants to be. You know, it'll be like the Wild West of grifting. It's insane. And they're feeling like they're almost there across the finish line, right? The GOP's on the ropes because Trump is such a clown, right? And he's in so much trouble. But the rest of them are staying with the party line because they're hoping they can switch out a Trump with a DeSantis or a Glenn Youngkin or a Carrie Lake or one of these other monsters that are out there ginning up the base with racism and hatred, right? So if they take the House, it's Hunter Biden this, it's Dr. Fauci this, it's all kinds of stupid noise and chaos so they can reclaim power or at least create enough distraction to get their agenda across. And that's what they were doing for the whole administration, right? Remember Matt Gates, Gates busting into the skiff when Adam Schiff was doing the first impeachment hearings and they were investigating the phone call and they had Fiona Hill come and testify behind closed doors. This is before she testified in public and Matt Gates snuck into the room and Adam Schiff had to kick him out and then they stormed back in with Steve Scalise and all these scumbags and ordered a pizza and stuff. They were doing that to protect Trump, right? They were doing that because they already knew Trump was selling secrets. They already knew Trump was compromised. And they were trying to find out what Fiona Hill knew, right? And they had Jim Jordan sitting with Schiff on the committee and he was hectoring the witnesses, right? They were doing that to provide cover. It was a criminal operation with a lot of capos, right? And they were doing things at, at a national and international level that would make anybody who spent any time in foreign service recoil. You know, as I always said, my grandfathers would be rolling in their graves and probably are knowing what Trump did. You know, and, and you can't just think of this stuff as theoretical. You got to think of the families you know, that didn't get to see their father or mother on Christmas because they were overseas, you know, working on behalf of this country. You know, they were finding brave people in other countries that were corrupted and willing to speak out in the interest of security. And they put all that in jeopardy to pay the bills of a 75-year-old dude in a diaper who's sniffing Adderall every morning, counting how many times they mentioned him on Fox News. Right? who spent his whole life in New York City not paying his bills, not paying his debt, cheating on his taxes, laundering money for the mob, assaulting women, you know, assaulting girls in Epstein's house, who was also vastly involved 
with the international money laundering scene going back to, you know, Mercer, who's Ghislaine Maxwell's father, and, you know, Robert Mercer, who was the enemy of Murdoch. Like, the whole thing is such a web of international stuff. And that's why Wendy Dang Murdoch got Jared and Ivanka back together and said, you guys need to get married. You're going to be a power couple. You know, you have a role in all this. And that's what played out, you know. It was a smash and grab on an international scale, okay. And the guy who did it is still walking free. He's going to walk out on his golf course today and play around at golf. And guys are going to go on TV and defend him all day long, every day, all week long. You know, up until the point he gets let out of Bedminster or Mar-a-Lago in handcuffs, if hopefully he does. And it has to happen soon, okay? And then we'll see how the tides shift. You know, then we'll see if there's other indictments. If guys like Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, and all these people spewing hatred that asked for subpoenas. You know, Lindsey Graham, who's defying a subpoena in Georgia as we speak, who called for riots if Trump gets arrested. That's foreshadowing. That's a precursor to insurrection from Lindsey Graham, a soulless man, you know, haunted by his own secrets, right? A guy used to dance for nickels for drunks in his parents' tavern as a kid, you know, a guy who's never had his own moral compass. He goes which way the wind blows, just like Kevin McCarthy, just like Mitch McConnell. Who's paying me? Yes, sir, may I have another, you know? That's the level of morality of these people, you know? So they're not going to stop protecting Trump, but something will shift when he finally gets arrested. Let's hope he does, you know? Because this is just, this is insane that we're talking about this. You know, this is the last week of August. August is over on Thursday. You know, this is supposed to be a slow news time, and we're getting this insanity, you know? It's just insane. So, you know, I know that's a lot. I know we're once again in this tumultuous time, but you got to feel like, you know, we're making inroads. You know, the good guys are winning. Biden is kicking ass. You know, the student loan debt relief is a beautiful thing. Handing over the White House Twitter feed to a girl from Jersey. Don't mess with a Jersey girl, right? They got this young woman who worked for Phil Murphy, who was great at social media, and she called them out when they were being hypocrites and saying, like, student loans are meant to be paid back. You know, we're a country that pays our debt. What's wrong with these people looking for a handout? They started calling them out. They were like, oh, really, Matt? Gates, you got 400000 in PPP forgiven. Really, Marjorie Taylor Greene? You know, you got 180000 forgiven or whatever it was. They were calling them out on their bullshit and hypocrisy. The White House was. And that's the kind of messaging we need. Gloves off. You know, let's kick some ass. You know, we were taking a yoga mat to a knife fight, as Rick Wilson or somebody would say. You know, it's time to fight fire with fire, and that's what we're doing. Because we're on the side of goodness. We're just fighting back with facts. We're not making shit up like they are, pretending Hunter Biden, you know, or Dr. Fauci is a criminal. We're just calling them on their own shit. And what was their response when they were called out on these PPP loans? They said, oh, well, those loans were designed to be forgiven. Really? Nobody said that at the time. I remember seeing Trump the night he signed the legislation that became the, or the, you know, executive order that was the PPP thing. 
he looked high, and not high on Adderall as I'm used to seeing him high. He looked high on the power that he knew him and his cronies were about to get paid big time. You know, and that's what they did. They were all sticking their fingers in that trough. You know, Larry Kudlow, my drunk, crack-smoking neighbor in Carnegie Hill, his wife got a PPP loan, okay? You know what her business is? Painting neckties, painting oil pictures of neckties. They live in southern Connecticut now in a very bucolic country setting, right? They're not somebody who had a bunch of employees that needed to keep the lawn service in business when the government shut down. They're wealthy, upper-middle-class Republicans, and they got tons of money from PPP. And what did he do? He was on Fox News last week on his business channel show having some idiot congressman saying, we're not a nation that, that needs to give lazy people handouts, which is bullshit, and it's the same fundamental racism that's built in to all of the Republican platform platforms at this point you know all their platitudes are just like hey white people pay their bills so stupid it, it's so thinly veiled it's so racist and they know that student loan debt disproportionately affects people of color and minorities they don't want people getting educated you know that's why Ron DeSantis and the rest of these guys are trying to destroy public education they want education to be you know, Matt gets, his dad can cut a check to William and Mary, and he can go there and get a law degree. Jared Kushner, who's an idiot, can get into Harvard because his dad writes a $200 million, $2.5 million. He, Jared's father, Charles Kushner, the convicted felon, got his son into Harvard because he cut a check for $2.5 million. Then idiot boy, who wasn't smart enough to get into NYU Law School after he graduated Harvard, had his parents pay for a new lounge at NYU to get him into law school. Then Jared went to law school, which was just a few years to live with his roommate on campus, and didn't take the bar when he got out. Because he didn't need the degree, he was already rich. He just wanted a little of the knowledge so he could further rip off his tenants which he does. Their whole empire, the Kushner empire, is low-income housing, you know, in Baltimore, all along the eastern seaboard. And they're, they're all infested with vermin and, you know, not working and black mold and bad plumbing and stuff in these apartments. And if people complain about it, they counter-sue them or they evict them, right? They use the law to abuse low-income people that just want to have normal living situations and they continue to collect rent, right? That's Trump 101. That's why those two families merged together because they were both immoral in how they treated people and they both exploited people who had less than them and used it to make themselves feel superior and to expand their criminal empire. And that metaphor is the Republican Party right now. You know, that's what they're doing. And they're being funded by dark money, you know, by what I just said, Leonard Leo and all these guys, the Koch brothers. They're pumping a fortune into the Republican Party because they see it, you know, they see this time like, like they saw the end of the, the Carter era where some people were getting hip to what was happening. You know, with the environment alone, people... You know, you can't ignore it anymore, right? All the rivers are drying up in Europe. You know, it's biblical at this point. Pakistan lost a thousand people in a matter of hours the other day because they're flooding. Ten million people are displaced 
10 million people. Imagine everybody in New York City being homeless overnight. That's what you're dealing with. And that's what we're all going to be dealing with on a global scale. It's no joke. And we have to do something about it. And the oil and gas industry does not want you to do anything about it. You know, And they know the place to focus is the United States and the Republican Party. Because that's the one political entity in the world that is corrupt enough and easily manipulated enough to do whatever they say in the face of climate catastrophe. And that's why we need to change this. And that's why we also need to, you know, Biden's kicking ass, but he needs to do more. Carol King, the great Carol King, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times this week about logging and how Trump, I mean, not Trump, Biden has to stop logging immediately. Shut it down in Idaho and the Pacific Northwest. They use so much energy extracting these beautiful ancient trees from the forest, right? Because they can strip a tree in a matter of seconds. They cut down these giant trees, cut off the limbs, and stick it on a truck in a matter of seconds with these giant machines that are spewing out you know, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, making the earth hotter. At the same time, the things they're killing, the forests process carbon dioxide and clean our air, right? It, there's nothing we need more on this planet, you know, than forests and old growth forests and trees right now. So if you want to help the environment, that's a great place to start, you know, and it's something that should be immediately done given the scale of calamity we're facing. And, you know, Carol King is a wonderful human being. I've gotten to work with her tons, you know, her, her, her band member, the section, you know, those are all friends of mine and you know i know carol's daughter who works in her management and i've had a lot of great interactions with carol king so if you haven't read that op-ed you need to read it because she would always tell me about you know what it was like living in idaho and she moved there in like the mid 70s you know when jackson and these guys were doing no nukes and muse and all this stuff she got into the environmental thing you know she wanted laurel canyon as she says in this op-ed to be this sort of bucolic paradise and it wasn't it's LA it's cars and all this stuff and noise so she you know she went and got the real deal up in Idaho Idaho and she would tell me I, I done as I said a bunch of stuff with her one of the most meaningful things I did with her was right after Katrina and today happens to be the anniversary of Katrina I don't know how many years maybe 17 years but um she told me that like we did a big benefit it was a deaf poetry jam after Katrina. You remember the like deaf comedy jam? They did them with poetry slams too, with all this kind of like people doing like, you know, slam poetry and stuff. It was very cool. Carol King seemed out of place, but she wrote this great poem, you know, and right before we went on stage, she was hearing all the young poets do these great powerful poems on Katrina, you know, and, and what it felt like watching George W. Bush turn his back, you know, on New Orleans and the black community. So there was this angry, fiery poetry. And uh, it inspired her to change her poem at the last second. And she borrowed a pencil from me. She's like, you got a pencil? We're standing there in the wings. And I give her my pencil, and she changes her poem and hands it back to me. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm a songwriter. This is my lucky pencil. And she cracked up. She was like, yeah, it's your lucky pencil. Good luck with that. You know what I mean? It was very cool and funny. But she told me what it was like living in Idaho even back then with all the militias, you know, and all the sort of right-wing organization and animus 
towards the environment. You know, because a lot of the people that benefit from logging and all this industry and pipelines and, the, you know, the first people that are willing to sell off the natural beauty and protections of that region are always, you know, dug in in those areas. And a lot of pol political leaders don't want to run afoul of that, right? They're always trying to expand, you know, and be more moderate and court the base. You can't court people like that anymore. Right? You can't court logging companies and oil companies. You got to tell them what time it is, and it's time to close up shop and save this planet. Okay, if you want it to be habitable, you know. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful world, man. We get to live in it. We get to enjoy it. I'm on Nantucket. You know, I was at some friends for dinner last night, and I took the bike path home in the dark, and it was like every star in the sky was up there in the heavens. You know, and as much as we get wrapped up in our own issues and the political stuff in this country and the very real problems we're all facing, we're all just, you know, tiny specks on this planet. And it's not to say that we're, you know, we're infinitesimal compared to that or insignificant. It's the opposite. It's like we're a part of that, you know. We're living in the same time. We're, we're beating hearts at the same time. You know, I sit and look at the ocean and there's all kinds of mystery out there and there's all kinds of creatures swimming around and that's not separate from me. Like, I'm a part of that, you know? There's a vast consciousness and a vast power that sort of flows through everything, right? Through trees, through flowers, through the wind, you know, through the animals. And when you realize you're a part of that, there's a strength in that, right? There's a lack of selflessness. You go beyond your own ego and your own desires. And in our world, our own man-made conditions, you know, and things that we use to sort of distract and give meaning to our lives. When in reality, it's this beautiful mystery that you're never going to have complete knowledge of what the meaning is, right? But to experience it, to be present, you get revelations. Right? It's like Carlos Santana once told me, I, I told this story before, but Carlos had this one line about a friend who died and he uh, committed suicide. And he said he drowned in a glass of water. Right? He was drowning in a glass of water, which apparently is an old Latin saying. It's beautifully poetic. You know? And it means he couldn't see the big picture. You know, he was consumed with his own tiny world. You know? And that's what we're doing as a people. We're drowning in a glass of water right now. And we need to expand beyond that. And I told Carlos like how much that quote had meant to me. And he said, oh, you want to know the meaning of life? I was sitting having lunch with Jose Feliciano. It was the Latin Grammys. Long time, 2008 maybe. And uh, so he, he stopped by the table. And this is when we had this conversation. He goes, you want to know the meaning of life? Get up. I'll tell you the meaning of life. And he had me get up and come over to him. And he goes, look into my eyes. Look deep into my eyes. And his eyes are like these brown pools of knowledge you know they're like these saucers that just suck you in you know the dude is like on another level with this kind of stuff so he's like look into my eyes I'll tell you the meaning of life and he goes my life and your life have meaning and the universe has purpose my life and your life have meaning and the universe has purpose and he touches my heart as he says this he says it to me twice right? And it was amazing. I felt it, you know? 
And that's what he was trying to say. Like, we don't know what the big picture is, but there's a reason for it. And we play a role in it. We all have value. Every human being, every creature, every flower, every tree, every bird has a reason to be here. You know, has a song in their heart that we need to hear. Has a truth that they're here to actualize and live. And it's part of the big dance, the big cosmic dance of the universe. And none of us can figure it out. And your job isn't to figure it out. It's to get out of your own way and help somebody else. Because that's how you're going to find real meaning. That's how you're going to find freedom. Right? Is doing what you can do for others. You know? So, that's about enough of a wrap today. Somebody asked me about John Prine, if I knew him or ever worked with him. And I know I've probably told this story before, but I loved John Prine. And I first worked with him on a show called Spectacle that I used to work on with Elvis Costello. And this, again, would have been 2008. And he was the Al Bonetta days, if anybody really knows deeply about John Prine. Al Bonetta was a manager. He managed Al Green and legendary kind of Nashville guy. And, and, and he and uh, John Prine had a partnership for many years in the music business. And then John's lovely wife, Fiona Prine, took over his management and made the man very happy. And uh, was a wonderful person. So I last worked with the Prines in 2019, you know, a year before the pandemic, in June, when he was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. He was there with Bonnie Raitt. They were singing Angel from Montgomery. It was an amazing performance. I've worked with Bonnie a lot. So I was assigned to John again. And he was like, he remembered me. He was like, hey, Noel, how you doing? You know, like it was the coolest thing in the world. The guy was my hero. You know, I got turned on to John Prine when I was living with my mom and her partner and a pot-bellied pig. And we had the missing years on CD, right? So I'm living with two lesbians, a pot-bellied pig, and John Prine's music, you know, in my early 20s. And that's a good way to put you on a path, okay? So john has always had a big influence on me so we're doing this show it's 2019 i'm doing comedy at this point i was actually out of live tv but i i was asked to come back and help out with john and it was an honor to do that cat stevens was on the show too yusuf islam but um so i you know i sort of i come out of retirement to show up for john because he needed a little extra handling and i got to walk him up on stage and all this stuff you know he he cheated death already about nine times at this point you know and uh i told him that i was doing all this comedy and what i was talking about that it was progressive that it was an extension of working with csn and jackson and all the sort of progressive politics you know that i'd been raised in with my own acerbic you know take that was deeply influenced by john prine you know so they were into that you know i was telling them some of the trump secrets and stuff and fiona was like we want to come and see you do a show in nashville john and i will come and see you and they gave me the name of a comedy club it was like razzies or something you know it was whatever the comedy club is in nashville they're like come do a show there and we'll come and see you so i got in touch with that comedy club and i was like book me john prine is going to come see me and I don't think they even knew who John Prine was, <laughs> like the booker in Nashville. And I think she blew me off. And then I got a celebrity friend to like talk to her who happened to be in the club you know, at a show one night. And I said, talk to this lady, tell her to book me, just 10 minutes or something. I just want to have John and Fiona come out to see me because I knew I was sort of racing against the clock with John. And uh, 
you know, whatever. The, the chick was like, yeah, or the woman, I don't mean to be disrespectful. She was like, I'll book you, you know, just let me see if I can find something on the schedule. And I never heard back from her. I never got booked. March 2020 came, COVID hit. John got COVID, you know. I knew, as did everybody who knew him, it wasn't probably going to work out well. And we lost John Prine because of that. I never got to perform for him. There's no point in that. I'm just telling you, I was pissed and I'll never play that damn comedy club now if they ever ask me, right? But the last moment when I when I said goodbye to John and Fiona at the hotel room, this was in New York City, I uh, I started to walk away. I said goodnight and Fiona came out. She said, no, John wants you to have this. And he came out and he gave me, she gave me a $100 bill, a crisp $100 bill. John wants you to have this. You know, thanks for all your help tonight. And you have to understand, tipping isn't really done in my business. We're not against it. It's just, you know, it's I'm getting paid by the production. It's not something. And he knew that. And he wasn't rich like a Madonna or all these people that never tip you, you know, that, that you work like crazy for forever. But that's the kind of guy he was. You know, he wanted me to be better off for the experience with him. So I put that $100 in my wallet and it was like, Bruce has done that to me before too, Springsteen. And it's like, how do you spend the $100 that Springsteen gives you? You know, or John Prine. You don't just spend that on whatever, right? That 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 note has some meaning, you know? So I had this thing in my wallet and I'm like, what do I spend it on? You know, what do I spend the John Prine 100 bucks on? You know, and this is in June. So by August, I'm where I am now. I'm in Nantucket. I, I come here every August for a vacation for a couple of weeks. And uh, I'm sitting on the beach one day. This is still 2019. And I'm thinking about John Prine. And I'm thinking about the uh, $100 bill. And I go, I know. Barbecue. I'm going to have a barbecue for the family tonight. Right? I'm just going to cook up a feast. John would like that. You know? And I went to this great fish market they have here. And I got all kinds of delicious you know, swordfish and all this kind of stuff. And uh, had a great barbecue. And I played his music on the back deck. And I listened to little kids running around, as you can hear in the background. You know, I'm here with some family and stuff, right? But I, I spent it on my life, right? I spent it on a moment. I spent it on time in the sun with people you love and nourishing and celebrating the bounty of life, right? And that was the right way to spend that money. That's how you spend your capital, on something bigger than yourself. Then it'll have meaning. Do you know what I'm saying? Does that make any sense? So somebody wanted to hear that John Prine story. That's the one I got for now. If you don't know John Prine's music, dig in. You're in for a treat. You know, you're talking about a guy on the level of a Bob Dylan, a Bruce Springsteen, a Gordon Lightfoot, you name it. You know, John Prine's got it. And, uh... I love John Prine. I miss John Prine. So that's my John Prine story. I've written that story in greater detail, you know, about, about living with the, the two lesbians and the pot belly pig, <laughs> one of which was my mom in those early missing years of my own. But uh, anyway, I appreciate you guys listening. I'm kind of rambling now, so I'll let you go. It's Monday. It's going to be another busy week, but it is the last week of summer. Try to take some time if you can and enjoy it. You know, feel that sun on your face. Go look at those beautiful flowers and the colors of harvest time. You know, and, and understand that we're going to win. Love always wins, okay? And the bad guys are on the ropes. They may lie louder. They may scream louder. But their time is coming. 
and they know it, okay? Love will prevail. We're going to vote blue in November. We're going to get this thing back on track, I promise you. I thank you all for listening. I love you. Until next week, peace. That's episode 78 of the Noel Kassler Podcast. Bye-bye.